This morning, the text of the proclamation of the gospel is taken from Jeremiah 2.13 and from John 4, verses 13 and 14. First, Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And John 4, 13 and 14, And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what are you chasing in life? What is it that occupies your thoughts, your attention, your time and energy? What is it, do you think, that will give you happiness, that will make you feel satisfied? For some it is money and possessions and the status they offer For others, it is the respect and admiration of people at work or the acceptance and love of family and friends around them. Some strive after beauty, others after knowledge, others after success. But if we strive after these things, if we make our own happiness the number one goal of life, we'll never achieve the satisfaction we're looking for. In our text, Jeremiah compares striving after earthly things to digging out a cistern that holds no water. We all know how important water is for life. We tend to take the availability of water for granted because in Winnipeg, our water comes out of the tap. Winnipeg's water supply comes from a huge lake. We're not threatened by a lack of water. But in many places in the Middle East, water is in short supply. People dug cisterns to collect and to store water. But if your cistern leaked, it was useless. It would not hold any water, which was essential for daily life. Instead, Jeremiah points to the Lord, Israel's covenant God, as the fountain of living water. He charges Israel with forsaking the Lord to serve other gods. In doing so, they have forsaken the true source of life and happiness. You see, beloved, there's a reason why we won't find satisfaction in money, possessions, relationships, recognition, or success. We have hearts that always want more that are rarely satisfied when we get what we're striving after. The satisfaction, the pleasure, it never really lasts. True satisfaction can only be found in the thing, can never be found in the things of this life. It can only be found in the fountain of living waters. So why am I preaching a sermon about this today? Because after this sermon, I'll need to make an announcement on behalf of Consistory. An announcement about the excommunication of one of our members. 
a member who has forsaken the fountain of living waters and has hewn out cisterns for himself, broken cisterns that hold no water. A member who thinks he can find satisfaction in things of this life. Seeing this causes so much grief and sorrow. How is it possible for someone to throw away such a great treasure for some shiny trinkets? And yet, beloved, we need to be humble. Are our sinful hearts really that much different from the heart of our straying brother? Are you not inclined to chase the things that this life has to offer? Don't you at times seek satisfaction in the things of this world? Don't we all at times push God aside so we can pursue what we think will give us satisfaction and fulfillment? Aren't we sometimes sold on the idea that if only we achieve such and such, then we'll be happy? Our text serves as a reminder and as a warning for all of us. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. God alone is the fountain of living water. We'll consider the sin of forsaking the fountain of living water and the treasure of drinking from the water of life. In Jeremiah 2, the newly called prophet receives a message from the Lord, which he's charged to proclaim in Jerusalem. The message begins by recalling the time when Israel was in the wilderness after the Lord delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. The Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. Israel is described as a newlywed bride. There were no limits to her devotion to her divine husband. This, of course, is not a literal recollection of the wilderness story. As we read about, elders, about Israel's wilderness sojourn, we see many instances of the people grumbling of their lack of trust in the Lord and of their dissatisfaction with the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Yet during their time in the wilderness, Israel did not serve other gods. Yes, they did make that golden calf at Mount Sinai, but that was more of an attempt to make an image of the Lord than a move to abandon him. All in all, Israel is pictured as a joyful and faithful bride, devoted to her husband, willing to follow him to the land he had promised them. In the verses that follow, Israel is compared to the first fruits of the harvest. The first fruits were that portion of the crop that was offered to the Lord as his portion. Israel was the first fruits of all the nations on earth. She was holy to the Lord. To be holy means to be given exclusively for the service of another, to belong to the other without reservation. The surrounding nations did not know this about Israel. Some of the nations attacked God's people on the way to the promised land, but they were not successful. For God had claimed Israel as his own possession and thus afforded her with his divine protection. 
Thus, our text describes the cherished position Israel had. The Lord considered his people, Israel, to be his bride. On earth, one of the closest relationships we can have with another person is to be married to him or her. In the institution of marriage, the Lord speaks about a man and his wife becoming one flesh. It's a reference to a deep intimacy, a close unity. The Lord was bound to his people because of the covenant relationship he had established with them. When Jeremiah speaks of the bride's devotion to her husband, the word used is that covenantal term, which we often translate as steadfast love or covenant faithfulness. But then something changed. After Israel settled in the promised land, they forsook the Lord. And so the Lord speaks to his people as a jilted lover. He asks the questions that anyone whose spouse leaves them asks. Didn't I love you enough? Was there something that I said that hurt you? Was there something you wanted me to do that I didn't do? Tell me, and I'll make it up to you. The Lord says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? When the Lord accuses people after going after worthless things, he's referring to the worship of the idols of the nations. The Lord had delivered his people from the gods of Egypt. He had shown himself to be the all-powerful God by crushing the Egyptian gods by bringing his people out of slavery with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. And yet his bride abandoned the one who rescued her and returned to the worship of vain idols. Psalm 115 describes the stupidity of serving idols. The psalmist paints a huge contrast between the Lord and idols. He says, "'Our God is in the heavens.'" He does all that he pleases. Idols are but the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The point the psalmist makes is that we become like the things we worship. Jeremiah stresses the worthlessness of idols. Idols are worthless because they can't do anything. They have no life, so they cannot help those who worship them. But his point goes even deeper. Those who worship idols become worthless themselves. The Hebrew word translated worthless is the same one used in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, which is often translated as vanity, emptiness, meaninglessness, uselessness, or pointlessness. The message from the Lord to his people is, you pursued emptiness, and so you became empty. The Lord demonstrates this by asking his people some more questions. His people did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us into the wilderness? 
The Lord continues, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The Lord also specifically charges Israel's leaders with leading the people astray. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know the God who gave them the law. The shepherds transgressed against him. The prophets prophesied by Baal. And thus the Lord enters into a lawsuit against his people. He says, therefore, I still contend with you and with your children's children, I will contend. The Lord challenges his people to see if any of the surrounding nations ever changed their gods. None did. The Lord says, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. The Lord is utterly appalled at this. He is shocked. Nations that served idols that were not real remained faithful to their gods. But Israel, who served the living God of heaven and earth, had forsaken her covenant God. And thus in our text, the Lord says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. A cistern is a holding tank. Often cisterns were hewn out of the rock. It was a laborious process to dig a tank out of the rock. But in the Middle East, it was necessary. Because of a lack of water, there was a need to store whatever water you could. But a cracked cistern is useless because it's unable to store water. The Lord uses this image to drive home what Israel was doing when they forsook him to serve other gods. The Lord compares himself to living water. Living water in the Old Testament refers to running water a spring, a stream, a river, or the like. The benefit is that such water is most often fresh. It is life-giving. But instead, Israel had turned away to seek their life and well-being in things that ultimately don't satisfy. In the Middle East, an empty cistern points to death, for no one can survive for long, in a hot and dry climate, without water. The question for us, beloved, is about where we seek our life and our happiness. What is it that occupies our thoughts, our attention, our time and energy? Are we not often guilty, trying to dig our own cisterns, trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong places? We work hard to get ahead in life. We think that if we only acquire the things on our wish list, we'll be happy. We think buying a nice house, driving a new car, getting the latest electronic gadget, having savings for retirement, that such things will make us feel content. But as we attain more stuff, our desires increase, our lists grow. We never seem to get there. Perhaps you've sought blessing in relationships. 
He wanted a husband or wife, a son or daughter, or to finally find a true best friend. You thought that if you just had those relationships, you'd be satisfied. Life goes on and God grants you a marriage partner, children and friends. But somehow your expectations shift. You still don't feel really content. You learn to know the struggles of maintaining closeness in marriage or of parenting kids or of putting in the hard work to be someone's best friend. People are sinful. They often disappoint us and hurt us. And so we're still left striving for more. Sometimes it's not money or possessions or relationships that drive us. Sometimes what we really want is to be accepted, to be respected, to be loved. We're tired of feeling like a loser, a failure, an outcast. Want to be popular, want to be successful. And so we work hard on what we feel are our deficiencies in life. Put excessive efforts into dieting or exercising or looking good. Come workaholics in our striving to be respected and admired. Sometimes we don't care so much about what others think about us. We just want to experience the pleasures this life has to offer. We do things that are not pleasing to God. Drinking too much. Getting high. Having sex outside of marriage. Gambling, living a party lifestyle, etc. Our focus in life is on living well, on fine dining, exotic vacations, cruises, and the like. We run after whatever gratifies the desires of the sinful flesh. And for a time, this may give us satisfaction. But will it last? If our focus is just on the here and the now, what about the future? Are you willing to forfeit eternal glory for the sake of some short-term pleasures on this earth? Beloved, it's sad when we see brothers and sisters in the faith or family members and friends forsaking the Lord and digging cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Anyone who strives after satisfaction from the things this life has to offer is only going to be disappointed. You will not find joy or peace or comfort or hope in the things of this life. Those who strive after happiness will never attain it. If we strive after the things this life has to offer, if we make our own happiness the number one goal of our life, we will never achieve the satisfaction we're looking for. We're looking in the wrong place. Brings us to our second point, and it will consider the treasure of drinking from the water of life. In Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord identifies himself as the fountain of living waters. 
What the Lord is teaching is that life can only be found in Him. The idols of the nations are worthless. They're dead images that cannot do anything for you. In contrast, the Lord is the living God. He is the source of His people's life and well-being. The teaching of how the Lord is the source of our life and well-being is made even more clear with the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks about giving living water to his people and of how those who drink from the water he gives will never be thirsty again. We see this clearly in the account of Jesus' meeting with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Verse 4 mentions that he had to pass through Samaria. That was not true geographically, for Jesus could have traveled a different way that was more convenient. It was also not true culturally, because the Jews despised the Samaritans, and they avoided contact with them as much as possible. So why did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? It was because Jesus came to save his own people. Because there was a woman and some of the people of Sychar that were his. Jesus and his disciples stopped at Jacob's well at noon. And Jesus rested there while his disciples went into town to get food. While Jesus was at the well, a woman came to draw water. It was a daily chore. People did not have running water in their homes So each day they needed to come and get water. This woman came to draw water at a different time from the rest of the women of the town. She came at noon in the heat of the day. She did so to avoid the other women because she was an outcast, a sinner. When she came to the well, Jesus spoke to her. He said, give me a drink. Now, this was totally unexpected. Yet by asking this woman for a drink, Jesus established a connection with her. She's astonished and asked, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? By speaking to this woman, Jesus crosses three barriers. The first was the cultural barrier. The Samaritans were a mixed-race group of people. The descendants of the Jews remaining in the land after the Assyrian deportation and those whom the Assyrians settled there from other lands. The Jews despised the Samaritans because they did not worship the true God of Israel. Secondly, Jesus crossed the gender barrier. Normally, a self-respecting Jewish man would not speak with a woman in public. And third, Jesus crossed a religious taboo. Jews did not share utensils with Samaritans. It was against the temple rules. The Jewish leaders said that would make you ceremonially unclean. Why then did Jesus ask this woman for a drink? Well, perhaps part of the reason was that he was thirsty. But that was not his main intent. Jesus wants to establish a connection with her so he could share the gospel with her. In answer to the woman's question about how Jesus could address her, Jesus said, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus begins by saying, if you knew the gift of God. Very clearly, this Samaritan woman does not know the gift of God. Many people in the world today have no idea that God has something to give them. Although deep in their hearts they yearn for it, they cannot imagine there is more to life than what they see and what they experience physically. Although they understand that they can satisfy physical thirst with a drink of water, they don't understand the longing of their souls or how to fill it. To communicate this to the Samaritan woman, Jesus tells her that if she knew who it was that was saying to her, give me a drink, she would have asked him and he would have given her living water. Now this piqued the interest of this Samaritan woman. She saw Jesus did not have a bucket and a rope to draw water from the well. She wondered if Jesus was greater than Jacob whom the Samaritans also claimed as one of their patriarchs. Pointing to the well, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. In the Bible, water is often used as a symbol of life. It is a reference to the gift of abundant life given us by God. Jesus tells the woman that whoever drinks of the water he gives will never be thirsty again. Drinking of Jesus' water is sharing in the life he gives. Here the Lord Jesus makes it clear that it's only in him that our inner longings and desires can be fulfilled. You see, beloved, Jesus truly is the lover of our souls. Life, apart from him, is ultimately empty. Yes, you can try and find satisfaction in the things this life has to offer. Money and possessions, relationships, acceptance, respect, love, or any of the things that gratify our desires do not bring true fulfillment or happiness. Temporarily, these things may distract us and occupy us. But they don't deal with the root issue that gets in the way of finding true and lasting satisfaction in life. Deep within man, there will always be a searching for the meaning of life. There's a longing of our souls for something more. Without Jesus, there is a void in man that's never properly filled. In our text, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here Jesus speaks about how drinking from the water he provides changes us inside. John 7, the verses 37 to 39 make it clear that the spring of water welling up inside us is a reference to the Holy Spirit working new birth in us. To be born again is to have a spiritual fountain welling up within you as God himself lives and does his life-saving work in your heart and life. 
What our text makes clear is that Jesus Christ alone can provide us with true life. He and He alone has become to our hungry and thirsty souls the true food and drink of life eternal. For by His death, He has removed the cause of our eternal hunger and misery, which is sin. And He's obtained for us the life-giving Spirit. It's when we believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord that we may share in the abundant life He gives. We may share in the forgiveness of all our sins, in renewed fellowship with our Father in heaven, and ultimately in everlasting life. Beloved, where do you seek satisfaction? What are you chasing in life? Where do you look for fulfillment of the deepest desires within you? What is it that occupies your thoughts, your attention, your time and energy? What is it do you think that will give you happiness that will make you feel truly satisfied? Are you looking at what this life has to offer? If so, you'll only be disappointed. Back in the 1960s, the Rolling Stones came out with a song that's still popular today. It's titled, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. They sang, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. No satisfaction, no satisfaction, no satisfaction. This band recognized that despite its success and the so-called good life they were living, the deepest desires of their hearts were not fulfilled. You cannot find comfort or joy, peace or hope in the things that this life offers. True satisfaction can be found in Christ alone. C.S. Lewis famously said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Revelation 7 speaks about the true blessedness that awaits us in the life to come. It talks about those dressed in white robes standing before the throne of God. It's a reference to all those who have found their life in Jesus Christ and who have been washed by his blood. John writes, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. True life and blessing are found in Christ alone. It's only in Him that we will quench the hungering and thirsting of our souls. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together from Psalm 116, stanzas 1, 4, 7, and 10.